remix. Stop. Medicine remix. Ooh, baby, medicine remix. Bang, bang. Got the game in a stronghold. I can hear it squealing. Stay wheeling and dealing because your show is straight appealing. I just wanted to come by and say one love. Keep doing the great content. You got my mind bent and I love it every single day. People need a little bit more medicine remix in their life. And I still think you guys are amazing at what you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your continued fight for those of us out here who are fighting but are not being heard, who are fighting but don't know what it is that we're doing or how to fight. And it's good to know that y'all give a damn. So I appreciate that. What's up, Medicine Remix? Enjoyed y'all station, what y'all been putting together. Keep doing your thing. Of course, you're going to do your thing. <laughs> Keep doing what you do. Hey, yo, Medicine Remix, man. I'm digging it, bro. Intros, all that. Content, all that. <laughs> yeah, man. Keep doing your thing. I'm here to listen, here to learn. Just get on. Thank you. Keep vibing and reviving, and I will definitely keep listening. Hey, what you guys are doing here is dope, man. Just had to tell you that. Keep it up, man. Grind so you shine, and God bless. Give the knowledge and continue to give others a platform. Bro, you guys are like the hottest shit on Anchor right now. Big things y'all doing. Yeah, man, been following y'all success. I was a hater in the beginning. I'm not going front. Oh, man. Hey, hey, hey. I was a hater in the beginning. I was on that hater roll, but I'm cured now. You know? <laughs> shake your hand. Let me shake your hand. Firm grip. Firm grip. That's respect. Woo, baby. I love Medicine Remix all day, every day. I love what you guys do. It's so entertaining. You guys, hands down, have the best mix show around. From the sounds to the projection of what you do, I love it. How could you not? It's crazy to me if people don't like Medicine Remix, and that's a fact. I hope you boys keep doing what you're doing, because I'm just gonna always support. We out here, baby. Let's go. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remixed. Support for today's Medicine Remix show comes from Zipitor Anti-Talk Listening Tablets. For those who not only need to listen, but more importantly, for those who need to listen with a willingness to let others change their minds. Imagine that. Zipitor is now available in liquid, designed for those who just can't seem to swallow their pride. Zipitor. Just shut the fuck up and listen. Side effects of Zipitor may include verbal constipation, not jumping to conclusions, and severe empathy. Ask your doctor or your significant other if Zipitor is right for you. Now, back to listening at its best. Medicine Remixed. The history, present, and future of marijuana as both a medicinal and recreational drug is a fucking roller coaster. So to help us make sense of all things cannabis, I interviewed a doctor that's appropriately known as the cannabinologist. Cannabis marijuana is a traditional medicinal plant. It's about 37 million years old on planet Earth. It evolved somewhere in India, China, Central Asia region around the same time that the actually the Himalaya mountain range was being formed in the same area where the Himalayas was being formed. And that's where the Indian subcontinent collided into Asia. And the reason I tell you that is because cannabis had to survive in an environment that was getting higher and higher in elevation every year. Wow. It's the highest, tallest mountain range on Earth. It had to adapt to the increasing UV radiation. 
more sunlight. So it started to produce quite a bit of chemicals in its flowers, resinous flowers. And that's probably where the terpenes and cannabinoids and flavonoids, these compounds that are medically treasurable in cannabis, they probably evolved in that type of environment all those tens of millions of years ago. And so there's tons of genetic diversity in cannabis, tons of varieties. And nowadays, as we're becoming more scientifically thoughtful and chemically thoughtful about how we want to utilize cannabis, we are interested in the cannabinoid class. And there may be about 112, 115 naturally occurring cannabinoids in the cannabis female plant resin. But the two that we've studied the most closely and carefully are THC and CBD. Those are acronyms for tetrahydrocannabinol and cannabidiol. What did you go to weed college? Damn. <laughs> That's Dr. Sunil Kumar Agarwal, the cannabinologist. He's a hospice and palliative care doctor that practices near Seattle, Washington. So you're at the University of Washington now, correct? Just an affiliate faculty there. I teach medical students in the palliative care clerkship. I've also got an affiliate appointment in this uh, Department of Geography where I did my PhD. I went to UW for my MD-PhD. I graduated about seven years ago, I guess now. And now I'm working in a community hospital system called MultiCare, just about 30, 35 miles south of the city. But I maintain some UW ties. His journey to this career of easing the suffering of the dying is not your typical one since he was basically led there by a plant that plant was of course cannabis you got your phd in geography is that what you said <laughs> yeah even though i've done my preclinical or my pre-medical college research in um, biochemistry and um, molecular chemistry organic chemistry that kind of thing i also had an interest in social science i have a philosophy background and i decided that i would try to go into kind of a medical social science because i was interested in public health so i did my phd in uh, medical geography which which is like a division of human geography, which looks at kind of a human health relationship to space, place, environment. Pretty broad. So what specifically did you uh, work on in your PhD? Is that kind of how you got involved in the cannabis research or is that completely like a separate thing? Well, uh, I did get back into it through that lens. I did my PhD dissertation on the medical geography of cannabinoid botanicals in Washington State. That was the title. Subtitle was Access, Delivery and Distress. And I was looking at um, basically the medical cannabis system in the state of Washington. I studied medical charts at a pain subspecialty clinic, did chart reviews. I did um, surveys at a point of dispensing with patients. I looked at health and I also looked at psychosocial distress related to the conflict between state federal law and basically how patients dealt with the distress of the whole situation. Really, I mean, my original interest in the cannabinoid space were through my interests in chemistry and the brain and neuroscience in college, I had uh, done some research in a lab, which was uh, just a couple of floors down from the lab, which discovered the mechanism of cannabinoid signaling in the brain, which was pretty cool at the time when I was, you know, in college. But I wasn't, when I tried to kind of get into that field in my MD-PhD interviews and tried to meet with lab researchers, it was just incredibly impossible to do anything clinical research-wise because of the restrictions. So I kind of had dropped and then kind of came back. What year are we talking right 
right now. What what year was this? I guess my interest in the topic kind of started in 2000 in college. I started at the UW in 2002, so that's like 15 years ago now. <laughs> oh, wow. A lot has happened since then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you were really on the front lines. You got a front row seat to all the changes that we've seen. Yeah, I'd love to hear you touch on that a little bit, just how you've seen things change before your eyes pretty rapidly. Yeah, it's true. I mean, um, it's, it's really just the lifting of the veil. This term that I kind of was using from the geography literature is daylighting. And that's just kind of uh, when I was living here and still in Seattle now, but a lot of times they would take these uh, creeks that had been, had been buried underground that were flowing to the Lake Washington and they would try to daylight them, which means like close them back to the ground so people can see them so they don't just go right into the sewers. And so I saw what's been happening a lot with cannabis stuff is just starting to shed light on this underground, hidden, occult, secret handshake kind of business to this like, okay, well, what's going on here? Where is it coming from? What are people using it for? What's the big fuss about it? You know, not just, you know, Cheech and Chong movies. Man, you want to get high, man? but really like story right. and pretty much the more and more people saw the trade the commerce and the consumption as more in public social play or at least daylighted social play it became more acceptable and more something that people could talk about and really there's just unfortunately I'm still kind of seeing even though there's lots of like uh, forward potential a lot of it the river has been kind of dammed up to small streams passing through what could be a stronger force because of the way that restrictions are still placed on how people can develop it and really grow it and study it. So it's, it's still um, not as full force as it could be, but it certainly is nice to see some streams daylighted. I like that analogy a lot. So was Washington the first state to legalize marijuana medically, or uh, I know it was up there? Oh yeah, it was It was in the second round. The first round was California, and actually the same day California passed, Arizona did too, but for medical purposes, and that, that was in 96, but Arizona law never, it was implemented. Uh, because it was written in a way that there was no way that it could actually get implemented under current federal laws. So unfortunately, it was it didn't go. So just California went in 96. And then in 99, Washington and Oregon went. So it was kind of in that second wave. D.C. also actually in 97, between California and Oregon and Washington, in 97, D.C. legalized medical marijuana. But because of the way that the federal government treats D.C. like a non-independent state, they were not even able yeah. to count their vote or implement it like until, you know, more more than 10 years later. But, you know, if you really want to be accurate in terms of when people voted on it, it was actually before Washington, the state. So that's kind of the history. My gosh, yeah, I had no idea. Not even half. The guy who blocked it ended up becoming a lobbyist for a marijuana policy project. Congress. Yeah. <laughs> so bizarre. The documentary. The documentary. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? <laughs> Pain management is a huge challenge. You know, cannabis has so much promise, maybe more in terms of chronic pain management, but you're definitely the expert in that regard. So a few questions, I guess, for you. I assume you're prescribing medical marijuana and, uh, you know, how, how does that work if so? Yeah, yeah, I do prescribe it, or we call it medical authorization because of the um, DEA license to get when you're practicing um, in medicine. We're not allowed to prescribe Schedule One substances without a Schedule One prescriber's license, which uh, you can get, but you have to be in a research setting and, you know, you have to have oftentimes attached to an organization that has a multi-ton safe to store it in and all that stuff. So, yeah, I'm scheduled to write mm -hmm. below. I can prescribe, and I do. Marijuana's company has a Schedule One drug, which is defined as a drug with no currently accepted medical use what? and a high potential for abuse. Seriously? Include heroin, LSD, 
ecstasy, and peyote. For a frame of reference, Schedule 2 drugs include medications that are at the center of the current opioid epidemic, drugs like Vicodin, Oxycontin, and fentanyl. But to write cannabis, which is safer than many of those substances, heroin or even right. other opioids, um, which you can overdose and die on, there's no way you can do that with cannabis. But that's a whole other story. But yeah, I authorize it course of my medical practice in palliative medicine. I do kind of integrative pain and palliative medicine practice outpatient and on the inpatient side, I end up doing a lot of palliative care, goals of care discussions, sometimes pain and symptom management, but oftentimes discussions around seriously ill patients and the families around goals of care. On the outpatient side, and even on the inpatient side, if patients are going to be able to utilize cannabis or cannabinoids, um, I will discuss that with them, and sometimes I'll prescribe THC pills, uh, which are available in the pharmacy, mm-hmm. aren't as good as the real thing, but can help in some dementia management that I end up doing on the inpatient side. And sometimes I've seen it helps with anxiety and helps to synergize with other pain medicines that patients might be on for chronic pain or cancer pain. Right. And then, you know, on the outpatient side, it's easy to, basically in the state of Washington, we do have a legal cannabis system, both for adults over 21 and for medical patients of any age. But, um, right. So the benefit of having a medical authorization is that you can produce it yourself, a certain amount, it's sold at a lower tax rate to the patient, and um, you can carry more quantities and that kind of thing and get some additional protections like that. So you just have to have that doctor's or nurse practitioner's, a few other specialist uh, signatures, and you have to have one of the qualifying medical conditions. There's like 12 or so of them. So it works like that. Okay. We're able to the shops and, and show them that form, and then they can register the state and get some of those additional protections. It's pretty good. You know, there's a large variety of different shops. And what I'm really trying to educate patients about is the THC and CBD science. Uh, the fact that CBD makes THC more tolerable and seems to optimize its effect in many cases. So uh, unfortunately, it's not as good as being able to directly administer it to the patient in the clinic because of the restrictions. We're not really able to do much of that. But we just have to give guidance to patients, education, and um, of course, talk to them about risks and it's not risk-free there's people that need, need to stay away from it and people who need to use it cautiously uh-huh. but you know by and large risk management is not a huge problem it's also legal risk as i was mentioning the federal law is still the way it is so that makes it hard for patients who are on welfare or who might be veterans or in other federally sensitive areas but anyway that's kind of what the medical practice looks like and pain control is the huge it is the i don't know how else to put it but i mean it's really a tragedy that we have completely drop this from at least the chronic pain management armamentarium or at least um, we seem to have dropped it for so long. And what's amazing, Grish, is that you can go back to 1912, I think I saw a journal article in the St. Louis Medical Journal where doctors were talking about like saying, hey, you know, all these doctors are out there like trying to prescribe morphine for pain, but they really should be looking at the values of cannabis for pain management. <laughs> And, you know, right. uh, it's really amazing, like, this dynamic of where we're going to go opioid direction or where we're going to go cannabinoid direction, you know, what's being talked about in the medical literature a hundred years ago. And you kind of see what's happened with the opioid route. It's not just the opioids, it's the lack of other options and the heavy marketing that was done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think we really have um, ignored this whole other system in the body that also manages pain. I think it's pretty unequivocal evidence that cannabis has a pain relieving properties that the National Academy of Medicine just put out a report which is kind of the most august 
medical scientific body in the country, which is was commissioned by Congress to do these kind of reports, and they only looked at very specific studies that met a very high threshold. And you know, they're like, yeah, this is pretty much this is a fact. Cannabis relieves chronic pain. So you know, the fact that we know that and still do not have any system to even have various varieties of it available for pain patients is um, kind of every day that we don't do that. It's like they're doing a disservice. And when those patients finally do get cannabinoids, and I've seen them, the most common question and complaint people will say is, how come you didn't tell me about this before? <laughs> you know, how, uh, why this long? And it's a really interesting, something I was reflecting on my, my little vacation I took this week out to the national park out here. I was just thinking about how common it is for people to have that kind of complaint. Why was I kept in the dark for so long? If you knew about this and didn't tell me about it, people get really upset about that. There will be a lot of upset people. Once these systems are set up, sometimes these systems don't get set up for a long time or they make it so hard for people to access it. That will be a tragedy if that happens that way. But the more we educate clinicians and the public, the less likelihood that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time that we're living in right now just in terms of we have access to information like we never have before. And that's not just on the provider side, but the patient side. I mean, literally everybody, more or less, whether you're on welfare or not has a smartphone and you have access to just tons and tons it's like information overload the part becomes what's the good information that you need to be consuming and from the provider standpoint i feel like you know in any relationship in our life I feel like the common denominator really is that we're teachers in each of our relationships at least you know we strive to be so you know what are the things that we're teaching our patients as far as the good information that's out there and the good sources to pay attention to and how do you package that in information in a way that they understand because it just is a disaster how fragmented the whole thing is uh, to begin with. But now, you know, that great power comes the responsibility that we're disseminating this information in a responsible way so that people are understanding what's at hand. It's huge. Oh, you said it very well, Rich. I, I think you're absolutely right. Doctors are teachers and there is a lot of junk information out there. There's a lot of scattered, unsynthesized information. And it's really also on us clinicians physicians to, to learn. That's part of the oath as well, Hippocratic oath that is continual education and um, medical arts require you to do that. And the nice thing about this is there are resources for doctors to learn now, online CME courses, sometimes there's public courses happening in, a, in an area depending on where you're located. There's textbooks, some of the journal articles are out there. The National Cancer Institute has a nice cannabis and cannabinoid information summary. My website, cannabinologist.org, I've got some review articles I've written that, you know, I tried to make really approachable for various topics. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg, and that's okay. I mean, what I also see in patients is, like, there's just so much information. They don't really know what to do or how to start. And sometimes if they're trying to use cannabis, let's say, for chronic neuropathic pain or chronic osteoarthritic pain, I've seen people just like, I don't really know what to do. It's too much. So just simple things, you know, and that's where doctors are, where jobs are, to really translate that complex slew of scientific information, you know, to the practical, okay, well, what am I going to do tonight, doc, with this pain that keeps me up at night or something and knowing to patients well you know a couple of milligrams like a standard dose of THC that the Marinol pills come in is like two and a half and five milligrams so you know starting at some level of that amount and then having some CBD in there to balance it out like those are just basically typical starting doses the same way that you should know your starting dose of acetaminophen you know it's like 50 milligrams right. or you just kind of see if it works and that's sort of a ballpark area and there's always going to be titration here and there and different ratios and fine tuning that's true any 
medicine, but um, sometimes it just gets so overwhelming to try to find that perfect, but you don't want the good to be the enemy of the perfect. And that's, I mean, that's basically the story of medicine, right? You Sometimes you don't get the MRI because, you, you know, their insurance won't cover it or they've got a, some implant and they don't have a new MRI machine that allows them to use that metal implant, but you still try to do the best you can. So, <laughs> I mean, it'd be nice to be able to have the tailored stuff, but right now the science is still in infancy because we still haven't figured out cheap testing to figure out people's endocannabinoid tones. So there's a whole signaling system in the body called the endocannabinoid system, which I was alluding to earlier. It's kind of a master homeostatic regulator, tamps down excitability or ramps up signaling if there's too little signaling. It's quite an interesting system and it'd be nice to be able to know where people are at in particular organs or in a systemic level, just like you get your um, vitamin D level checked or you get your uh, ionized calcium and stuff like that. So I think those kind of things will help to make this more than the art that it is. But, you know, it's okay. It's a traditional medicine and people have been using it for a while. And the thing is, the range of safety is so good that you're not going to run into troubles, even if you kind of fall too far out of a normal, acceptable target range would ideally be if you knew the numbers. So anyway, that's my kind of right. pitch to what I call praxis. It's pragmatic, practical stuff that will really help those pain patients. Because right now, it's just kind of a, this opioid or this gabapentinoid, and then they'll end up when you're operating room and maybe they could have avoided the surgery and some of the complications. Sometimes surgery is the best for a particular clear indication, but I've seen a lot of patients who have what we call failed spinal surgery syndrome or failed back yeah, surgery syndrome. Yeah. You know, well, if maybe if we had done better pain management, we could have avoided the third surgery or whatever it was. So that kind of thing is um, where it's going to be important for everyone to make sure that various ratios of cannabinoid products are easily available and as affordable as opioids are, accessibility is going to be a challenge as we start to recognize this. You know, pain affects multiple stratas of society, so we're going to have to make sure that this is as available as the massive doses of oxycodone that were shipped to rural West Virginia pharmacies at the height of this overdose death epidemic that we were just talking about. Anyway, I could go on about this. But yeah. sure. no, <laughs> yeah. no, it's so interesting. I'm just jotting some notes down here just because there's so many questions I want to ask you. The issue with dosing is such a big question that I have. One just really alarming statistic that's just like kind of stuck with me just about the United States in particular is just the fact that I think we're maybe like something like 5% or of the world's population, but we're like 80% of the world's opioid pain medication consumption, which is just interesting on so many levels to me. Like, you know, what does that say about this society in particular from the psychosocial standpoint? But that being said, too, when you look at other countries and how much further along they were on the research side of things with cannabis, places like Israel, and the fact that we're, quote unquote, on the cutting edge of medicine and, you know, we contribute a lot in terms of research to the overall medical literature internationally and are leaders in that regard. But how and why has it taken so long for the United States to catch up on that front? Is it just, you know, as Jay-Z says, politics as usual? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I do think we can escape some of the classic American features of this prohibition, which were the association of cannabis with hippie culture, with anti-war protesting in the 60s and 70s, which tore apart the country. The Vietnam War protest created a lot of the divisions, and those divisions go back to older divisions in this country, which relate to race relations and Jim Crow laws and even further back. And so we have a big, crazy history with anything that like touches on race or class, especially race issues in this country is going to be 
deep and complicated because of how many years we did that kind of stuff, which is different from other places, um, but it is unique in the American experience. And we really globalized marijuana prohibition. We pushed it around the world, and we were not about to be the first ones to relinquish it. Um, interestingly enough, the Israel cannabis cannabinoid science boom, which has been going on for many years, actually, uh, thanks to the work of uh, Raphael Mashulam, who was a medicinal chemist who first uh, mm -hmm. isolated tea he described his structure and isolated the first endocannabinoid in his lab. Brilliant, huge contributions, Nobel Prize-worthy stuff. If the Swedish Nobel people had their act together, you know, it'd be on the short list. But anyway, his work was funded by the federal government, the U.S. federal government. What? <laughs> so, you know, our, our tax dollars giving money to other places. So there's some interesting kind of things that do get out of there. And, you know, he still gets funded, I think, from the NIH. So we've made those contributions and we just haven't been able to enjoy the rewards, I guess, of our own science dollars, which is another, the human rights issues are so sad here, but there is kind of a right to access your society's scientific discoveries, and I think a lot of people should be up in arms about this, and I think there are growing, now what's happening is pharmaceuticalization is happening very rapidly, and so some more cynical folks are saying that the federal government really isn't going to act until the pharmaceutical companies get their whole plant cannabis product to market, and once they are in the market, if they're the first to get interstate marketing right, then their price point can be set higher. If there's already competitors on their state-level markets or even interstate markets, their price points are lower. I mean, it's very cynical, but listen, our government, our health economy is capitalistically driven, and um, it's not a heel, but it's how many points your stock goes up. And I think that's a sad reality. And so a lot of this also is tied into how we do healthcare in America. So it's the politics, it's the economic, but we are behind. But in the same way we're ahead too, there's some of these state cannabis programs, and I think California is, that economy is so huge. You know, it's like the fifth largest economy in the world. Just the state itself. So those kind of things. And Californians have been used to cannabis, like I said, in sort of more of a public setting for decades. So they're, they're going to hopefully create more of a pushback to the top-down monopolistic approach, which that's also what's happened, by the way, with opioids. That's part of the way that Purdue and all the makers were able to, to do this so much is that these international treaties that got signed in the 60s really foreclosed opioid production and opium and morphine, which is essential for medicine. I don't want to, like, underplay. Opioids are a godsend, but it's not... Like, a time and a place. Yeah. Exactly. It's just one... And that's another thing, you know, I want to get out of the idea of a single medicine. I mean, we need multiple things in our toolkit. And so my wish when I was going through training was, like, I want to be able to, at the end of my training, have cannabis as part of my toolkit. Not the only thing in there, but definitely a, it'll suck to practice medicine without having this in my toolkit. And the same goes with other substances, psychedelics, LSD, ayahuasca, psilocybin. These are also old, forbidden medicines or plants and substances that are gaining a new awareness, you know, in health and healing for really severe psychological conditions and existential anxiety at the end of life. And I'm sure there'll be pain applications as well because of the psychological overlap between chronic pain and anxiety and other psychological states. So that gets to sort of the heart of what really has driven me, which is I want to see science and medicine and you know, health sciences flourish. It's not good to, you know, have arbitrary blocks because of stigmas and stuff 
stop our ability to further understand how the body and mind work and how, how we can deal with pathology. I feel like a lot of these laws have stymied so much of our scientific uh, understanding of the body and biology, really. Anyway, that's kind of the, um, yeah. <laughs> the other part of it. So popular. No, no, no. Please, please. I'm just so fascinated by both your journey and, you know, just the amount of information that you have that I think is so important to get out there. It's one of the big reasons I wanted to talk to you. A few things. I'm trying to be mindful of your time. I know you're super busy, but as far as the economics of this, as, as we've been talking about, you know, healthcare is very much capitalistic, as is the rest of our society. But as far as the economics, and economics, of course, is the study of incentives. So as we talk about medical marijuana being legalized and hopefully very soon in the entire country on a federal level. But until then, I guess in states where it's legal and doctors are kind of pushed to practice in a certain way, I guess my question is, how difficult is it right now for a doctor to obtain a license? As I'm sure that's a big incentive for any doctor that's able to prescribe that for any of those 12 indicated conditions that you mentioned. How difficult is it to get a license to prescribe marijuana? Oh, that's, we have the easiest job in that regard. I mean, medical practice is regulated by state. That's why all of us get these medical licenses on a state-by-state basis. And, um, you know, your entire disciplinary record, your entire licensure record, all of that is generally at the state level. So the fact that your state board, you know, often is involved in a state licensing authority or board that's different names of different states is involved in the, oftentimes in the regulation crafting and in the educational requirements, the licensing requirements, whatever they might be in state by state. That kind of gives a lot of the doctors some cover because, you know, nobody wants to, to do anything that's out of the scope of ability from the state licensing board. So generally, they try, they try not to make these too onerous. Some states are a little bit more than others. And some, some states get to pay something. It's generally nominal. Um, in my state, Washington, there's really been no, there's no requirements aside from being a state licensed physician. They're planning to put a CME course on their Department of Health website, but it's voluntary. It's not mandatory. So, you know, hopefully doctors mm-hmm. will view it because it'll be helpful and maybe it'll become kind of an accepted standard that, in that regard. But yeah, usually it's just a little bit of education here and there, which you need anyway. And um, early in my days, you know, I went to the AMA and talked about this stuff as well, American Medical Association. And people, even back then, like in 2007, I tried to do calculations and figure out maybe some like 10 to 20,000 physicians had authorized cannabis for their patients in various medical states. And there's no cases that we found of just for doing that that a patient, a doctor has faced this new action. It's usually other types of inappropriate medical behavior, which you see in medicine, you know, people um, just kind of running mills or, or not doing proper basic examination or, you know, basic stuff. Basically being like, like a, a yeah. drug dealer with a degree. Has yes, that's right. Documentary. Documentary. Who's the doctor that he told you to go see? Being like a crusader for cannabis and for, you know, research in medical marijuana. Pushback that you might have gotten on the journey if you did with Thomas on Right, okay. I just basically was always a little bit of a, I guess, rebel, had a rebellious streak. You know, I was never, 
one for super conformity, so it kind of suited my personality to be a little bit outspoken. Okay. You know, I really believed the science I was reading, and I felt like I had a chemistry degree from Berkeley, and one of my early career aspirations was to be a chemist, you know, or some kind of organic chemist or something. And when I learned about pharmacology and receptors, uh, how, you know, there's like a lock and key, it's very specific. It's amazing when you think about the atomic level that that's happening on. And when I found out there's actually it's like these receptors that are everywhere in the body, 10 times more prevalent than opioid receptors in the brain, and they're in the immune system, et cetera, et cetera. And that these cannabinoids from the plant partially agonize them in a very nice way. It's like, okay, well, that's, I get it. And, oh, and the system, you know, regulates mood, appetite, memory, inflammation, pain perception, even bone growth, by the way, you should look into that. Okay, this is obvious. Like, this, it was like, it kind of, yeah. my mind was like, like, I get it. So, you know, it didn't matter to me, like, any, like, crazy association people had with stoners. Yeah, I study, huh? Take the test, huh? Yeah, school. So we're like stupid people. And then, you know, my other thing was like, well, I'm kind of tried to be an overachiever or tried to achieve a lot academically in my life, or at least that's what I tried to do. And when I was growing up, cannabis was associated with like losers or people who like failed academically. So I thought, well, maybe by just being a little bit more vocal, I'm trying to leverage what privilege I may have been able to put together. Because I mean, just achieving whatever is not just somebody's hard work. It's like having family that supports them and not having to like work extra jobs and there's so many things that make it possible. I mean, also having an inculcated work ethic from my parents, I guess. But they were actually the bigger um, challenge for me. You know, my dad, who's also in medicine and he's an immigrant, that journey is, uh, I, I dedicated my dissertation to my family. So I, I always had them in my, you know, in my mind. And my dad, he worked for the VA hospital, federal government, this thing. And he's like, you know, doctors won't take you seriously if you work on that. No one's going to take you seriously. <laughs> so he's like trying to give me this like advice as they steer clear, keep your nose down, do stuff later on that, you know, once you're established, that was always, a, you know, kind of risk aversion mentality. And then, you know, sure. I did get the Student Association of the American Medical Association to unanimously, nearly unanimously, call for review of the scheduling classification of marijuana in federal law. Review and reclassify is what they said back then in, in 07. And we, we sent it to the full AMA, which finally voted on a slightly modified version of that in 09. <laughs> But between 07 and 09, I told my dad, hey, you know, I got the, the largest group of medical students in the country is like also calling for this. He's like, oh, they're just medical students. You know, they're, like, they're, they're, yeah, they're not yeah. doctors, you know. So it's always like kind of, you know, that's not that's not good enough. But then I guess, you know, Gupta, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, neurosurgeon, yeah. respondent. I got to see his show before he debuted it in, in New York, actually, at, at the Time Warner building uh, and got to see uh -huh. like a weed documentary uh, that he made on the Epileptic uh, seizure, Charlotte Figgy girl. Charlotte's condition got worse. 300 seizures a week, almost two every hour. She was not talking or moving, basically catatonic. As a last resort, doctors wanted to either prescribe a powerful veterinary drug used on epileptic dogs or put Charlotte in a medically induced coma so her brain and body could rest. For Paige, those were not good options. But maybe, just maybe, marijuana now was. Great. Uh, you know, it, yeah, for sure. That was like, whoa, okay. Sanjay, his brother's name is Sunil. You know, and my brother's name is Sanjay. Wow. <laughs> there was, there was oh, no... Okay. little but, parallel universe thing going on. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and our come from similar parts of India, and the, those kind of things were, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, this guy is kind of like where my family's from, or at least has some similar, like, he'll speak to them, you know? And, um, and so now, you know, my mom's friends are asking me for 
advice, you know, stuff like that. So it's changed, you know. <laughs> is there a part of you that when your friends or family that previously were like haters of what you were doing, is there a part of you that now when they come and ask you for advice about this stuff, is there a part of you that's just like, oh, look who it is? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's like part of the doctor's job is you come as you are. People got right. their troubles and you try to help them. But it is, it's like my social medical geography hat where I just kind of look at that cultural social evolution on these cannabinoids. It's just people really were kept in the dark for so long. And it's been an extremely successful campaign to demonize marijuana for decades. Marijuana kills. I mean, decades and decades, multiple generations. And it's always been, if you look in the history, it's always been a drug or plant that has defied control. So I just kind of, um, you know, it's not about me. I, I just happened to find a really interesting topic. I wanted to go into medicine to be able to develop something new. And it just turns out that the new thing was something that was old, but with a new understanding of it. So, yeah, um, <laughs> right. It's certainly been like a rediscovery as, you know, other ancient practices like meditation and yoga, you know, all these like ancient things that have lasted the test of time, but now that Western medicine is able to test it and measure it and show with painstaking effort as far as running research studies and all this money to basically prove what's been done for thousands and thousands of years just without those sophisticated ways to measure these things. But, you know, as the science is coming out, it's really driving the evidence-based principles to say that, hey, this cannabis thing is for real. You know, it's not anecdotal anymore. It's not a bunch of people telling stories. This thing is the real deal. They've been doing it in ancient India and ancient China. We're proving this to the doubters that the numbers don't lie. I mean, there is a social cultural cannabis use. Um, people have named strains and associated it with different cultural practices for so long. I think cannabis is going to have to sort of live in a social space. It's going to live in a medical pharmaceutical space. It's going to live in a holistic medicine space, yeah. integrative medicine space. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Ishan. Oh, cool. Uh, my son is here now. Do you have any uh, anything else that you want to ask? We could totally wrap this up. I would love to do a round two sometime, and I'm definitely going to be keeping up with the work that you're doing. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate this. It's my pleasure. I look forward to it, man, and I hope to meet you soon. Likewise. Bye-bye, guys. Thanks a lot. Big ups to Dr. Sunil Kumar Agarwal for all the work he's done and continues to do for the medical marijuana movement. So grateful that he agreed to talk with me and it was really a lot of fun and I learned a shit ton. So I hope everyone listening did as well. You're listening to the one and only Medicine Remix. Documentary. Documentary. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? Listen, we don't have much to go by, so if you guys would please just like and subscribe anywhere you see anything. Medicine Remixed. Like the shit out of it. Just click on it. It doesn't cost you anything. Just move your fat finger and click on it. You're clicking all kinds of other shit at work when you shouldn't be. God damn it. But uh, we appreciate it, and that's really you know the only surrogate market we have to go by. And listen, the other thing is, fucking tell people about it, man. Tell your friends about us. Tell your friends. I mean, I, I'm always amazed, man, when people think 
people are famous. Like I've never been starstruck ever. And the reason I've never been starstruck is because somebody said to me once, you know, the only reason that person's famous is because you made them famous. Right. I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, stop caring who the fuck that is. Yeah. Watch how famous he is now. And it's yeah. like, holy it's like fuck, we, you're right. We give things meaning, man. Yeah, absolutely. And and we give words meaning. We give everything, meaning. man. And like, when people when people think like, oh, you know, my friend's an artist. Uh, he wants to make it big or whatever. You know something? Fucking support that. I mean, if he sucks, he sucks. But if he's even halfway good, man, you make people famous. I don't think people realize that. You make things important. And damn it, make us famous is what we're saying. Fucking tell people. No, but my point is, is that the only way this is going to get out and it's ever going to grow any legs to it is if people tell other people about it. And listen, if you don't like it, thank you for suffering through it. We love you. And if you like it, we'll fucking tell somebody, man. And to be real honest, the feedback that we've gotten back so far, fucking great, man. We appreciate it. Well, we're, we're having a good time doing it. And this is our way to be creative within a field that really is an art and a science, sure. but the art has been taken out of it yeah. for creative people in medicine. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of like super sure, talented man. people. Absolutely. This could be a forum for those people looking for a different right. way to express their craft through a more creative means. Hit us up. Yeah. All right. We love you. Peace. Peace.